Reading today comes from John 16, 7 through 15. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So today we're going to have a lot of slides, a lot of readings. Um, We're not going to be in um, one particular text. And so if you want, you can kind of follow along. We'll try to have stuff up so you can kind of see where, where it's coming from and everything. Um, but, you know, we, we sing this, we declare this, like Sam sang it for us a few minutes ago, or let us in singing it, that, um, that knowing more of Jesus is a good thing, and that Jesus knowing more of us is a good thing. Um, and I would say that most of us probably believe that, right? Like, to some extent, like we do, right? So, when we talk about, like, the gospel, like, when we talk about believing the gospel, um, what Jesus came to preach and proclaim you know, it's funny, like, we're, um, we're leading our kids through the, um, uh, our first two fifth grade kids, Dana's written some stuff for them, are going back through some of the basic things that, that maybe we've all heard, like, what is the gospel, what is grace, all those different deals, kind of looking at Philippians 2 and kind of drawing out all that. Dana's done a great job of putting that together for us. But one of the things that we define in there is the gospel. And so, um, you know, when our scriptures say that Jesus came um, to preach the gospel, like, sometimes it just says it straight out, right? Mark, this is how Mark begins his gospel. He begins his account simply by saying, Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God. He just says it straight out. The gospel of God saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. That's the literal, the literal translation of gospel, right? So to believe the good news. This is, this is what's coming. So Jesus said, there's good news. And so believe it. Well, Luke gives us a little bit more detail of what that good news is that the good news that Jesus heralded and then would spend the next three plus years of his life expanding on in ministry, right? He says, And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, Jesus went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Jesus unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, the gospel. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, looking to Jesus. And Jesus began to say, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In the power of the Spirit, at the blessed command of the Father, Jesus proclaimed the good news that God is with us today 
The kingdom of God is here and at hand. And that not only is God with us, that God is for us. That his life-giving, freedom-setting, salvation and favor, his acceptance, goodwill, approval, his glory is extended to those most in need, the poor, right? The gospel truth that indeed we are saved, that we are freed from all that would, that would, um, that would hold us captive, captive. We are given sight where we would normally stumble and be blind and led into all kinds of things that are not good for us. And we're set free from those that oppress us. And that we're not just freed from what binds and blinds, but we're freed into the favor of God. God's blessing, God's glory. And faith tells us that God's exhaustive knowledge of us, his hemming in of us as we've looked at over these last few weeks in Psalm 139, his never non-presence, crafted intimate knowledge of every thought, action, desire, and potential of our heart and soul is actually good news. Faith tells us that Jesus proclaimed and demonstrated in his life, through his death and his resurrection, that the favor of the Lord, the year of the Lord's favor, the freedom for the oppressed, the freedom for the captives, the sight to the blind, is actually the world that we live in, the absolute reality that we live in. That we actually believe, our faith tells us that this is true. When we wake up each morning and we take in breath, that we're breathing in the reality of God with us and God for us. And all of that means, all that Jesus has proclaimed, by faith, we are convinced that through Jesus' words and actions, we're saved. They were freed from all that would keep us from discovering, from seeing who we truly are in relation to God. That we are freed from all that would bind us, from all that would oppose us living out that soul-satisfying fulfillment of our discovery in the love of God and others. That that is indeed what is possible. Our faith in Jesus tells us that God desires humanity's salvation for his beloved creation to live in his delight, his approval, his favor, his kingdom. But as we reminded last week, faith must be completed by hope. It's one thing to believe it. It's another thing to move into and take hold of that which we have faith in. That's what hope does. Hope completes faith. It hope says that God wills me to be saved. And, and because God loves me, I can respond to his desires that seal my faith's conviction. For what we believe by faith, remember Merton said, what we understand by the habit of study and devotion, we possess and make our own by hope. By hope we lay hands on the substance of what we believe, and by hope we possess the substance of the promise of God's love. That when we move out of our faith, what we know to be true in the morning, into living that truth, it's hope that animates us. It's hope that moves us forward. It's we're stepping into what is possible. While faith gets us started and keeps our eyes focused, it's hope that moves us forward and keeps us reaching for that which our faith has entitled us, assured for us, that indeed Christ in you is the hope of glory. That Christ in you is the hope of glory. And you remember what we talked about last week? I will just say it briefly as, as we move into it, but the promise of glory, the certain promise of glory, is a promise, as C.S. Lewis said, of almost incredible and only possible the work of Christ. That some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination. That, that any of us, all of us who actually choose it, the promise of glory is that we will actually survive God's exhaustive knowledge of us. It is hemming in of us. 
but is knowing us, what we'd say before we say it, our getting up before our going down, our highs and our lows, at the moments of our darkest despairs, the moment of our greatest achievements, knowing that he knows and he's uh, all the intimate parts of us and formed all the inner part of, intimate parts of us. Know that he's set us apart for something holy and good and grand. Knowing all the days before they are even written, that all of that is actually good because we survive it. We survive his knowledge of it. We shall not just survive it, not just make it through as ones who come through and test, but as C.S. Lewis goes on to say, we shall find approval. We shall actually please God, because that's what glory is. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God. And listen to this. To be loved by God, not merely pitied by God, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father and a son, seems impossible. It feels impossible sometimes, right? Like, if I know myself, and I think I know myself decently well, like, I'm not always pleased with me. But to know that when God searches me and looks at me, he comes away delighted somehow. Seems impossible. Not just pitied. Pitied I'd get, right? I'd get God pity me. I'm a poor, broken sinner. I, I jack up all the time, man. Like, there's, there's, there's things I trip on every day, trip over every day, um, in family, in relationships, in all those kind of things, right? So I'd get it if God pitied me. But God delights in me? That's a different thing, right? That's an amazing thing. It seems impossible. As C.S. Lewis would say, it seems like a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. But so it is. What else can you say to it, to that truth, right? To the incredible, to the amazing, simply but so it is. To discover our salvation, that we are fearfully set apart to be pleasing to God as an ingredient in the divine happiness. That he made us as a, to, to be a part of what makes him holy and good and glorious and joyful. And that's incredible, right? Not just like that he made us to be a part of that. Like we're a part of, of God taking and looking at creation and saying it is good. Certainly feels too wonderful to grasp fully sometimes. But add to not just the reality that like that God made us to be a part of divine his divine happiness, an ingredient in divine happiness. But to, but added to that the realization that the more that our souls cling for in life, long for in life, the fact that we're dissatisfied more often than we're satisfied with life, right? Wouldn't that be true of a lot of us, most of us at some stage? But more often than not, no matter what we have or what we're doing, we find a lack of satisfaction at some point. And so our souls are always longing for something more, always aching for something more. And to recognize that the more that our souls crave out of life is actually the freedom given us by Jesus to see and live into our unique manifestation of God's good desires and design for us. That what we long for is to be able to see ourselves as God sees us and live that out uniquely as God has made us to. That seems impossible, right? Yet sometimes that same incredible truth the same amazing truth that, that calls us to worship, right? That's what it does, right? When we, when we say these things, we tend to sing songs about them. And that's what the psalmist did, right? It's the first half of Psalm 139. It's praise, it's worship. Like when we, when we think about how God thinks of us, 
It's incredible to know that we shall actually survive the examination, the examine that we've been doing. God's searching and knowing our hearts because of who we are and are made to be in Jesus can feel, like Lewis pointed out, maybe a little different than just praiseworthy. It might actually feel a little weighty, like a burden. Listen, a weight, the weight of glory, I think, that's, that Lewis is talking about, and this is certainly how I think he's been interpreted, uh, I think is meant to be a positive thing. Right? When he says that there's a weight and burden to glory, um, I think he's talking about something positive. We'll, we'll chat about that in a second and what that means. But, but, but it makes me think about another idea of weight that we've read before, right? Remember what the author of Hebrews said um, um, that Christine read for us earlier, that we are to be ones um, who find ourselves a part of God's great heritage of faith because we're part of God's great heritage of faith. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. Every weight. The weight of glory positively, I think, is the grandeur, the grander, fuller, more genuine life we are made and able to live. Like, the weight that we feel when we think about how God thinks of us, in a positive sense, calls us to something more than just self-absorption, self-fulfillment. Calls us more than just trudging along life, surviving to the next day. It's the life of us, our souls crave to be known, loved, and pleasing, affirmed in our competence and place within the family, cause, or kingdom. That's what the glory calls us to, to satisfy that craving, to, be, to know what we're made for and get to live what we're made for. It drives us to attain um, in life what it is that we're promised. Not in self-absorption, but in wholly committed, given away life to something and someone else. Positively, that's what I think the weight of glory is meant to be. But oftentimes, we try to live up to that life, don't we? And that's where the weight can become a hindrance rather than an animating force, a hope. The same hope of glory, the destiny of grandeur that calls us into something authentic and complete, negatively translates into striving to no longer be poor, weak or needy. And our aspirations for the more of glory, the thing that we think we're called to, we strive for what we, what we can imagine. Not our actual selves, the person we are fearfully set apart and wonderfully made to be, as the psalmist says, but for something else, and oftentimes something less. Thomas Burton, which we'll, we'll refer to him quite a bit today, so my apologies, but but he helps us, I think, recognize the irony of our issue. And it's kind of a paradox, right? That we're made for glory, and yet our striving after glory gets us in trouble. It makes us miss it. and have to settle for less. He says our Christian destiny is, in fact, a great one. I mean, that's the beauty of, of the hope of glory, right? That's what Jesus has called us into, that we actually have a grand destiny, a great destiny. But we cannot achieve greatness unless we lose all interest in being great. For our own idea of greatness is illusionary. And if we pay too much attention to it, we'll be lured out of the peace and stability of being, of the being God gave us and seek to live in a myth, 
we have created for ourselves. It is therefore a very great thing to be little, which is to say, to be ourselves. It's a very great thing to be little, which is to be ourselves. Because when we try to live into what we imagine God desires for us, what we imagine God has made us to be, we don't ever quite live up to his imagination, right? How can we? His thoughts are too high for us, right? That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 139 over and over again. When he says, this is too wonderful for me, my mind can't contain it, he's not just saying it's so amazing. He's saying, literally, I cannot wrap my head around it. I can't get a full picture of it. It's more than me, even though it's completely me. The truth is, we are, as Peter encouraged, to supplement our faith with excellence, but not an excellence we ourselves imagine or which our families, our culture, or our commercials imagine for us. And maybe at no other time in history, it's been true throughout history, but maybe at no other time in history are we inspired to imagine like we are today, inspired to imagine ourselves however we want to imagine ourselves, in whatever way we want to imagine ourselves like we are today. And just beyond the, the, the immediate surface level implications of that, it's everywhere. It's pervasive, right? That we are, we are being invited to hope for glory in ourselves. But not because Christ is in us, but because simply of what we can imagine ourselves to be, what we can make possible through all the things available to us. But here's the thing. We cannot make the best of what we are if our hearts are always divided between what we are and what we are not. Because doesn't a lot of the things that we're told to hope for, to go for, to imagine, don't you find yourself often feeling like you can't be those things? Can't grab those things? Can only hope to accomplish those things? But Merton would tell us, above all, we must learn our own weakness, our own limitations in order to awaken a new order of action and of being. A new order of action and being. A new order of how life really works. And experience God himself accomplishing in us the things we find impossible. That God is the one in us that accomplishes the things that he has for us. If that sounds familiar, it should, right? That's what Paul said, remember? A couple weeks ago, he read it. Paul said in Philippians 2, he said... If we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that is, if we are to be in awe and with trembling, do the service of our lives, do the thing that we are made to do to please God, to glorify God, to be all that we are meant to be, free from what holds us captive, free from what oppresses that reality of who we truly are, that unique expression of who we truly are in God's image, able to see fully who God is and who we are in relationship to God, to live in the favor of the Lord, if we are meant to work for that, to, to in awe of God, in, hum, in hum, humility, do the thing that we are made to do, we can only do so, Paul says, from a place of faith-filled dependence. For the very next verse says, for God is carefully working in you. Who's working? We're to work out our salvation, but it says God is carefully at work within you, both to desire to do and to do the thing which you desire. God is the one who is working within you both to desire, to long for the thing that you're longing for, to continually show you the thing that you're longing for, as well as to do the thing which you eventually 
and fully and in, in completeness actually long for, satisfies. To lay aside everything that binds and blinds us from sharing in God's intended glory is our attempt to remove, is not our attempt to remove all the blemishes on our records. To lay aside everything that binds and blinds us from sharing in God's intended glory is not our attempt to remove all the blemishes on our records. The relative perfection with which we must attain to in this life, if we are to live as sons of God, as heirs of God, as ones who get to receive what Jesus receives, the glory of Jesus, like we talked about last week, is not a a 24-hour-a-day production of perfect acts of virtue but a life from which practically, listen to this, a life from which practically all the obstacles to God's love, a life in which all the obstacles to God's love, from ex- all the obstacles that keep us from experiencing God's love and responding to God's love, of dwelling in God's love and living out of God's love have been removed or overcome. That's the life that we're called to. That's what holiness is. To live a life where all the obstacles that keep us from knowing God's love and responding to, to God's love, experiencing God's love and living out, as what did Jesus said? My greatest commandment, to love others as I have loved you. To actually be the ones who love as God loves us. Have been removed or overcome. That's the thing we strive after. That's what we must attain. That's what the writer of Hebrews is encouraging us to lay aside. Anything that would keep us, trip us up from experiencing and responding to God's love. Obstacles like unnecessary weights, aspirations and ideas of glory that oppress who we truly are. Ideas that we can go and get it ourselves. Ideas of glory that are not the glory that God has for us, but have been told to us by those around us. Even ones we love and think highly of. It's somebody else's idea of glory, not God's. We have to let go of those weights. We have to put those weights off. And we put those weights off by remembering who we have, whose glory we share, Jesus' glory. We remember what is true, that what is true is not what I think of myself or what those around me think of me, but who God says I am. And we learn to listen to who God says we are. But here's the thing, if you, re- you remember, it's not just that we let, a- let go of the weights. We take off the things, the-, the aspirations and ideas of glory that are off, whether they're our own or those around us, or whether we think we can achieve it rather than accepting our own weaknesses and being okay with being little. But there's also this thing that entangles us called sin. It clings to us and binds us from moving freely and who God has crafted us to be here. Again, go back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Lay aside, let us also lay aside every weight, but also every sin which clings so closely, so that we can run for the long haul with endurance, this life that's set before us. And listen, while sin is first and foremost an affront to God, a grievousness to his heart and to his purposes, right? An action or attitude, a way of being that, that makes him grieve grieves his heart, grieves his goodness and and purposes in life. It is so because sin leaves each of us short of God's glory. Remember the 
probably the line that everybody has memorized to some extent, whether they want it to or not. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? Next to John 3.16, this might be the ne- this may be the next most memorized, but less, least quoted verse, right? <laughs> For all have sinned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin keeps us from living into the persons we are meant to be. From sharing in the glory, the delight and purpose given to us by our very being as God's beloved. We fall short of what God has for us when we sin. Not just some sort of we make him mad, like a parent, like a child makes a parent mad, right? But part of what grieve, with the grievousness of sin is that when we sin, we fall short of what God desires for us, the fullness of who we are, and usually cause somebody else to do the same, right? Merton says, sin strikes at the very depth of our personality. It destroys the one reality which our true character, identity, and happiness depend, our fundamental orientation to God. Again, if our orientation to God, who we are, is only possible in being known by God, knowing God, listening to God, following God, if that is our true character, identity, and happiness depend on that, sin disorients us. It takes us away from the thing that points us in the direction we're actually supposed to live. We are created to will what God wills, says Merton, to know what he knows, to love what he loves. Sin is the will to do what God does not will, to know what he doesn't know, to love what he doesn't love. Therefore, every sin is a sin against truth. Every sin is a sin against truth of what God knows, of what God desires, of what God loves. A sin against obedience and against love. But in all these things, sin proves itself to be a supreme injustice, not only against God, but against ourselves. Because we cannot know ourselves apart from the other, sin keeps us from the truth of who we are and for what we are made. While sin tells us we are finding ourselves, we are actually enslaving ourselves to something else, entangling ourselves and something that keeps us from achieving the thing that we desire. Unlike weights that can be removed by remembering truth, the pervasiveness, persistence, and power of sin have to be overcome. In some ways, we can, we can remove the weight from us of the false ideas of glory, the false expectations of glory, the, the, the things that would, would misunderstandings, misconceptions, lies, whatever you want to call them, by remembering truth, by speaking truth to one another in love. We can do those things. But with sin, something else has to be done. We are helpless in the face of this obstacle. No amount of truth-telling, listen to this, no amount of truth-telling, no amount of holy practices or penitent sacrifices, as good as those things are, will rid us of our entanglement to sin. We cannot cut that entanglement ourselves. We can't. As much as we want to, as much as we long to, as much as we try to, we cannot overcome sin on our own. Good news. We needy folk aren't left on our own, but gifted the helper. That's good news, right? 
Remember what Andrew read for us a few minutes ago? Jesus' description of how life with him post his resurrection would continue. This is what he said in John 16. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. It's to your advantage that I go to the cross, that I die, that I take on sin, your sin, the weight of sin, the burden of sin, the cost of sin, the price of sin, that I take it onto myself. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. If I do not go to take on your sin, the helper doesn't come. But I am going away. I am going to do that, right? But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he, listen to this, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, this brokenness, this this off-the-mark way of living, because you don't believe in me, because you don't look to me, because you don't see what I've done and how I've done it, right? If sin disorients us from our orienting, fundamental orientation towards God, then the helper reorients us to Jesus, our actual orientation to God, the way we relate to God, how we know what God says and what God desires and how God acts through Jesus. Concerning righteousness, that is, the right way of relating, because I go to the Father, and you'll see me no longer. The Holy Spirit will lead us in how to relate to God and to one another. Because that's what Jesus did. That's Jesus' entire ministry. He's like, I'm not going to be side by side with you anymore, but I'll still be with you. The Helper will show you how to relate rightly to the Father and rightly to one another. And concerning judgment, Concerning the wrath of God, concerning the end of evil, concerning the, 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 the thing that brings about the future hope in its completeness. Why? Because the ruler of this world is judged. Because everything that, that sets its tone in opposition to God is overcome. But how is it overcome? Through my death. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. And not just is it overcome, everything in opposition, but everything that even speaks semi-truth is proven to be what it is, untrue. Because the ruler of this world, the one who engages in ideas of this world and leads the ideas of this world, is judged. And Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. Talking to his disciples in that moment. But then he says, when the spirit of truth, so the helper comes to us to help us, us needy people, remember how sin is overcome in Jesus. Remember how to relate to God and to one another through Jesus. Remember and recognize, discern what is true and what is not. Because the helper is not just one who convicts in judgment. The, the helper is the one who Jesus calls the spirit of truth, who guides you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, and therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. What does the Holy Spirit tell us? 
and speak to us? Does he speak to us condemnation and judgment? He judges the, the ruler of this world. Does he, he speaks to us what is Jesus to speak to us. He speaks to us what Jesus has given us. And what has Jesus given us? Life. His life. His glory. A way of life, right? This is what he does. And he doesn't do it on his own accord. He does it because Jesus is the one who gives it to him to do. So remember that our practice of the examine is not a self-examination, but a pursuit of God's knowledge of us. We are not trying to discover something that is not known already, right? It's not new. You're, all you're trying to do in the examine is listen to the helper, to learn to be guided into all truth, the truth of God with you and God for you. That's why we can pray, search me, O God, and know my heart. Examine me and know my disquieting thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me. Not just know me and search me. Like we, we say that a lot, right? That's usually, and I, honestly, like that's where we tend to stop. But then we ask, show us the disquieting thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me. Any weight that I am carrying that is hindering me. Any sin that grieves your heart that I'm living in. We can ask that without any shame, without any fear. Because we know, as the psalmist says, that he will be, will be led in the way ancient and everlasting. The helper will remind us what is true, that Christ is in us the hope of glory. So, what we're going to do this afternoon is spend a little time asking the helper to guide us into all truth together. The author of Hebrews, again, told us that in order for us to to run this race of life um, for the long haul, we're to lay aside the weight and sin that clings so closely, but look to Jesus who began our faith and who perfects our faith. And the examine is nothing less than a prayerful reflection on our experience with Jesus over a specific period of time. It's our looking to Jesus, an intentional looking to Jesus with us and for us. Again, as we try to lay aside those things that would keep us from maturing our faith in daily life. The examine makes us aware and helps us keep running well and for the long haul. It helps us remember that we are both poor and needy and unimaginably rich. Right? Because that's the truth, isn't it? The good news is that we're the poor, that we're the little, that we're the needy. The better news is that God came for the poor, the little, and the needy. And that's who he frees. That's who he gives sight to. And so... In your space right now, let's just quiet your hearts. Take three deep breaths. Every time you breathe in, breathe in the spirit of truth that speaks and guides you to what is true. That you are indeed poor and needy and so incredibly rich in Jesus. Breathe that in. Deep breaths, each breath, the spirit of truth speaking and guiding you to what is true.
As you exhale, breathe out any fear or anxiety or arrogance that would keep you from receiving what you need most. God's exhaustive and freeing knowledge of you. For just a second, prepare yourself to be guided to all truth, all the truth of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Ask the Spirit right now to search your heart and to bring to memory the grievous ways in you. Again, not in judgment, but in hope. Those moments in the week when you were least aware or even maybe ignoring God's presence. Maybe those times when you were least responsive or outright rejecting of the Spirit's leading this week. Those times when you were least like Jesus in your actions and attitudes. And those encounters and experiences when your soul was anxious or unsettled by the negative weight of glory and or the sin against truth. I'm going to give you a few minutes to do this. And I don't encourage you to write these things down unless the Spirit prompts you. But there's going to be some questions up on the screen that will just kind of help you search through your week to see the grievous ways so that you can do what the author of Hebrews said, that you can lay aside every weight which clings so closely. So do that together for just a few minutes. Nobody's favorite part of uh, the examine, right? This flip side of searching, asking the Spirit to search our grievous thoughts. But hopefully, that's the reason for that is often because we have a misunderstanding of the weight that comes with it, right? We enter into it with a lack of understanding of what God desires for us and is trying to do with us. Of honestly, a lack of of hope in the gospel that it's good news that God knows us. And knows all about us. And so, but the, the truth is that when we ask these kind of questions, sometimes we can't help but feel the burden um, that we don't quite live up to the glory of what God has for us. And sometimes, maybe if it's not just a burden of I'm not good enough and there's no way this can be me, it's the burden of, okay, I've got all kinds of things to do now. I've got these 14 things to change and 15 things to to flip over and to do and add to my schedule and all those kind of things. If that's you and you feel that burden right now, let it, don't dismiss it. Feel it and feel the weakness that comes with it. It's probably easier to feel weak when you feel like you're not able to live up to something, but if you're honest with yourself, when you look at all the things to do, you know you won't be able to do, in all honesty, right? You feel pretty weak. So let yourself feel the weakness in the moment. And then hear these words. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If this first part of asking and remembering makes you feel weak, then you're in a good place. If it makes you feel little, you're in a good place to a degree because that's where the place where Christ died for. So remember God's grace that we live in. For it's God's grace that we live in that we can look forward to tomorrow and ask with hope that the Father for His we can ask prayerfully and hope for what the Father does to be completed for us in Jesus, to do the service of our lives. And so, the psalmist, as he prays, search me and know me, examine me and know my disquieting thoughts, see the grievous ways in me, doesn't end there. It doesn't end in the realization of weaknesses and limitations of hopefully over time, the more you do this, the less it feels like a weight of weakness and the more it feels just like, hey, I'm becoming something, and I'm not quite there yet. But until it does, and even when it does, the prayer of examine never stops there. It always has a look for tomorrow. It always has an expectation of, now lead me in the way ancient and everlasting. We're never meant just to sit in the grievousness of our lives, but to be led out by the helper and the spirit of truth into all things that are true. Not just in what we believe and what we know, but how we live. And so now is your time to write. Now you get to write things. For the next few moments, reflect on your conversation with the Father and the Spirit of truth as revealed to you. Write down your reflections to these questions. Now you can ask, is there anything or relationship with anyone where I need to take a step towards restoration tomorrow or this week? Again, this isn't you coming up with a list. It's you asking and listening to the Spirit of truth who will guide you into all truth of how you need to live in relationship with God and others. Ask the Spirit, is there anything that I need to start doing? Stop doing. Start believing or thinking. Stop believing or thinking. Commit to or stop committing to. You don't have to answer all of these. But now is your time to ask to be led. Your place of neediness, you're already there. You feel it. So that nothing should keep you from asking for what you need. Let me pray for us now. Let us sit in this time for a few moments, and then you'll hear Sam playing music, and that's when you'll know the time to continue. Father, we thank you that we are weak. And that you and your grace died for ones like us. For us who, even at times, if we are honest with ourselves, are ungodly. We thank you that you show us your love for us. And that while we were sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. And so in a place of need, believing that you have all that we need and that you long to give it to us, we ask for your spirit to guide us into all that is true. Speak to us what we should do and not do 
where we should go and not go and give us ears to hear only what your spirit says. Because he speaks for your son who loved us, who died for us, and who rules and reigns even this moment. So it's in his name we pray. Amen.